0: Well, for the last few weeks and the last few months, when I have run into you in a store, you've said, hey, I'll, I'll see you on Sunday. And I couldn't say that back. And so now I can say, it's good to see you. Because you all saw me, but all I saw was that glass back there with the camera. And so if you're watching online, you know, you may notice something that I don't look in the camera as much because I want to look in these faces too. And so I just want to encourage you that we are really glad that you're here. I want to do something as we get started today. There is a team of people that has been working behind the scenes and many Sundays before I arrive and after I leave. And they've fought through technical difficulties, new capacities, they've had hard conversations, and they've done all of that so that you could remain connected. And we honored them throughout this series and throughout this season, uh, but they could never hear it from you. And so would you honor our team who's serving behind the scenes and producing these services? Whether you're serving today or you're watching from home or you're here and part of that team, we just want to say thank you. Audio, video, lighting, camera, our whole production team. Thank you for, for making church possible for so many weeks. And uh, and yeah, this feels a little bit like riding a bike to me. I feel like I have like, training wheels on again. I'm kind of learning to, to do this. And so if I don't do this perfectly, thank you for your grace in advance. Um, I just want to just jump right in today, if that's all right. We're in a series on James. If you're here and you're new to Cornerstone, we're going through the book of James the entire summer. We'll finish up in August. And uh, James is one of the most practical books in the entire Bible. Um, But just because it's practical doesn't mean it's easy. There are some really hard things in this book, but they're things that we need to hear. And the subtitle of the series is called Practical Wisdom for Life's Adventures, and it feels like we're all part of one giant adventure. It's not like the Choose Your Adventure books because none of us chose that this was going to be our 2020, but it definitely is an adventure. Webster defines an adventure as something that's typically hazardous. And 2020 feels a little bit like that. It's it's hazardous, and we're going to look to James for wisdom about how we navigate it. So, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up or turn it on and go to chapter two. We're jumping into chapter two today. We finished chapter one last week. If you're new to the Bible and you're new uh, to James, James is in between the books of Hebrews and First Peter. It's near the back of the Bible. The the name of the book is, the the writer of the book, a guy named James, who's who's one of Jesus' half-brothers, and uh, and James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 is our text today. And so I want to invite you, if you're here, to just stand in honor of God's word, and hearing the sounds of those seats pop is really encouraging. So many things bring us joy these days. So follow along from home. Uh, we're in verse 1. This is the English Standard Version. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would read our hearts, would reveal the places in us that aren't aligned with you, would equip us with the truth to live in light of this new understanding. And I pray today that my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, my God and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, I know that's a longer text. It's one of the longer texts that we're going to tackle in this series. There's a a lot there. And let me just simplify what I think is the central idea that James is trying to communicate to us in James 2, 1 to 13. And it's this, that partiality and faith in Christ are like oil and water. Partiality and faith in Christ are like oil and water. If you've ever seen oil and water, and I'll show you in a second, they're not necessarily things that go together. If you've been following along in this series, we're memorizing a verse from each of these texts that we study in James. And our text for today that we're going to memorize is James 2.1. We have it here in the New Living Translation where it says, "'My dear brothers, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others?'' And later today, if you go onto our page, PrescottCornerstone.com slash James, after our second service, you'll see a wallpaper there you can download for your phone. Now, the word there that's the big word in the first verse there is the word partiality. Your Bible may say favor. And that word is a Greek word right here. It's prosoprolepsia, prosoprolepsia. And it's translated a lot of different ways. It's translated favoritism, partiality, discrimination, or my favorite, snobbery. And this this word is 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 is, it, it has some qualities of many English words. It's a figure of speech. So, you know, if you say birds of a feather or, you know, um, peas in a pod, those are figures of speech. The word prosopolepsia is a figure of speech. And literally what it means is accept the face. What it means is that you lift the face of one person and you don't lift the face of another. You see the face of someone and you treat them based upon what you see. And so I worked all week to try to come up with a really simple Definition that I thought everybody who's watching, whether kids or adult, would understand. And here's what I think the word partiality is getting at here in James 1. Partiality is discriminating between people in a way that God does not. When James says there should be no partiality among you, what he's saying is that there should be no spirit or act of discriminating between people in a way that God does not discriminate. And so that kind of favoritism, that kind of snobbery, that kind of discrimination, that kind of partiality is not present in God. Therefore, that distinction should not be present in us. So the big idea was that that partiality and faith in Christ go together like oil and water. And for me, the the water in the illustration is... uh, is the gospel. Kelly, if you can go ahead to the next slide. The gospel gives us clarity and unity. The gospel gives us clarity and unity. The gospel says that all of us are on even ground. I know I'm on a stage today, so I'm easier to see, but the truth of Christianity is that we're all on level ground. It doesn't matter where we were born. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter what our skin color is. It doesn't matter how much education we have, how long we've been a follower of Jesus. All of us are on level ground underneath the cross. All of us, without what Christ did, are hopeless, are broken, are sinful, are lost. And the only hope we have is nothing that we've done for ourselves, but what he did for us when we couldn't do anything for ourselves. That's the gospel. That's the faith we have, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And if that's the gospel, when we try to take partiality and mix it with the gospel, what happens is this. The partiality tries to push its way into the gospel. You see the bubbles trying to go down into the water. But what happens over a period of time is on a chemical level, the water pushes all of the oil back up, and they're completely separate. And that's what James is saying to us in our big idea today, that partiality and faith in Christ go together like oil and water. They don't mix They don't coexist. They're separate, distinct things. And the reason why James spends so much time talking about this is that this has to be a problem in the church that he's speaking to, in the Jewish Christians that he's writing to. In fact, if you've been in the series, what you noticed is that James spends more time talking about partiality than he does trials, than he does temptations, Then he does a bunch of things in this book. It must have been a huge problem. And that's where I want to go first today. Why is partiality so dangerous? Why is discriminating between people in a way God does not, why is it so dangerous? I think there's four reasons if you're following along today in your notes. The first one is this. It contradicts God's character. Anything that we do that contradicts the character of God is problem. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. This word, partiality, that appears in James 2, appears in several other places in the New Testament. We first see it in Romans chapter 2, where it says, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no prosopolepsia. God shows no partiality. And so in this context, the indication is that God does does not show partiality between Jews and Greeks. That's a race-based partiality. And Romans 2 says God doesn't show distinction based upon race. In Ephesians 6, this word appears again where it says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In the day of the Bible, there was slavery. And and Paul is writing to masters and slaves in the church in Ephesus and saying, hey, in your culture, there's partiality shown based upon being a master or being a slave. But from God's eyes, God does not treat you any different. God does not see you any different. God does not assume any value difference between slaves and masters. That partiality is not present in God. And then in Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Speaking of the judgment of God, that when God judges us, he is not going to show partiality in the same way that we would. He's going to judge everyone. And so what we see again and again is in four places in the New Testament, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and here in James, again and again, partiality is a quality that contradicts God's character. Number two, the second reason it's dangerous, is that it puts us in God's place. Anytime one of us takes the position of God, not a good thing. And here in James chapter 2, this is what we read. Have you not then, when you show partiality, made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So when we show partiality, when we discriminate between people in a way God does not, in essence, what we're doing is we're saying, I am for the moment going to take the position of God. And I am going to judge as God would. Not a position I want to be in. Not a place I want to hold. I do not want to usurp the place of God. I don't want to be a judge like God is. I most certainly don't want to be a judge with evil thoughts. That's what James is saying. Third reason partiality is dangerous is it contradicts our citizenship in heaven. All throughout James, one of the things James brings his Jewish Christian audience back to is the reality of the kingdom of God that as we become followers of Jesus... We've stepped into a new citizenship in heaven. And here in James 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God's chosen Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? So in this world, we have the poor who aren't as valued, and we have the rich who are highly valued. But in the kingdom, things go upside down. God takes those who are first, remember, and he says the first will be last, and the last will be First, those who are poor in this world will be rich in faith. And when we distinguish and discriminate and show partiality based upon poor people and rich people, we're not living out our citizenship in heaven, and we're showing that we're still living according to our citizenship in the world far more than we're living according to our citizenship And that problem is just as challenging today as it was then. The ways of Rome were at odds with the ways of the kingdom of heaven. And there are times no matter what country people are a part of today in the 21st century. Every country has ways that contradict the citizenship of heaven. And so when we show partiality, we're showing that, hey, we're forgetting our citizenship and we're contradicting it. And then number four, this is probably the most honest and for me, the most confronting reason partiality is so dangerous is that it's an ugly, life-destroying sin. Partiality is an ugly, life-destroying sin. I think that James thought that his audience didn't take partiality seriously enough. There's times as a a writer and a speaker, I want to make sure that people really get the seriousness of something. And so I will use a device in writing or I'll use a device in speaking to try to communicate that. That's one of the reasons I brought out my, my oil and water today. I wanted you to see just how distinct and different partiality was from faith in Christ. I wanted you to notice that. And what we see next in James's words is I think he's trying to help people say, hey, you are not taking partiality seriously enough. And here's why. In verse nine, here's what we read. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls at one point becomes guilty of all. that. That's why the ground is on the foot of the cross. Because all of us have broken the whole law. We're like, well, yeah, but I haven't committed murder and I haven't committed adultery. So, like, why am I equal? Well, listen to what he says next. He says, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. We all want to say, hey, I've done these bad things, but I've not done these super bad things. So I'm not so bad. And he says, no matter whether you've shown partiality or you've murdered or you've committed adultery, all of those transgress the law. And if you've broken one, it's as if you've broken them all. In essence, what, what James is doing here, he's saying there's a shelf. And it's the shelf of sin. And, and in your house and mine, we've got multiple shelves. We like to think that certain things are on certain shelves. Certain sins are on certain shelves. And he says, no, there's just one shelf. And partiality, it sits right next to murder and adultery. Now, we might judge somebody who's murdered and go, man, you literally took someone's life. We might look at somebody who's committed adultery and said, man, you've destroyed someone's life. You've destroyed someone's family. But if we've shown partiality, if we've discriminated between people in a way that God does not, what James is saying is that that sin, your sin, my sin, is on the same shelf with murder and adultery. And that's why it's so dangerous, and that's why it's so serious, and that's why he spends 13 verses trying to show us that these two things don't go together, that if we profess faith in Christ, there can be no partiality in our hearts. So let's get honest about where we live today. Where does partiality still happen in the church? Where does it still happen? I think it happens in at least four areas. The first place it happens is with money. That's the context that James is addressing. It happens with money. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, somebody has not agreed with one of my decisions. And their response has been, after realizing that I made a decision they didn't like, they've said, do you know how much money I give to this church? And I always respond with two answers. The first answer is no idea how much you give to the church. And that's intentional because I don't want to show partiality because I don't trust my broken sinful heart that sent Christ to the cross. So that's why I don't know. I don't know what any of you give intentionally. So that's the first answer. The second answer is this. I don't know and it doesn't matter because there is no partiality in this place based upon how much you give. But we'd all like to think at times, and I think we've all fallen in this area, where we think the money that we have or the money we don't have is reflective of how much influence we should have, how much we should matter. Second area, I think partiality still exists is age. Age. The scripture tells us that we are to honor those who've gone before us. But so many times in the church, once you a certain age, the vibe is you don't matter as much anymore. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's also places where until you are a certain age, you don't matter unless you tithe. And then that's a whole nother issue that we just talked about. But our temptation is to look on people and value them based upon their age or devalue them based upon their age. There's also appearance, I think we still wrestle with partiality in the church when it comes to appearances. My friend walked into a church once wearing flip-flops and it was a traditional church. And the usher said, Sunday best. And my friend, who is a smart aleck, said, well, Jesus wore them and kept walking in. But how many times have you walked in somewhere and either overheard or yourself judged somebody based upon their appearance, made a, a value and a story on who they were? I've, I've read story after story. I've never done it myself, so I can't do it here now. So you're, it's not going to happen, just so you know. I'm kind of blowing the opportunity right here. But I've heard story after story of pastors I know who've walked into their church looking like a homeless person. They went on vacation, let their hair grow out. They got some help with some makeup. They got some clothes that they'd left out for a long time. They put them on. They smelled. And they went through the whole experience. And the stories of the are heartbreaking. Their own safety team wouldn't let them in the building. Or when they did get in, they were judged, marginalized, looked at, pointed fingers at. And when it came time for the sermon homeless person walked from the seats up on stage. So now I can't, I can't use it here because you guys would totally know it, um, but I think it still happens. I think it still happens. The fourth and final one, you may have wondered if I was going to acknowledge, and I, I can't preach this text and acknowledge it, and it's race. And let me be really clear. I said, where are these still present in the church? I'm not talking about culture right now. I'm talking about America. I'm talking about church. And some of you might say, Scott, why do you talk about race again? Let me tell you why. Four years ago, I moved to Prescott. I left behind a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And the man who followed me, I was the interim preaching pastor. The man who was the lead pastor the Sunday before I left is Hispanic. And in his first year as the pastor of the church that I gave 13 years of my life to, 10 years as a staff member, he went through horrible things. On Sunday mornings, people attended the church and those people would catch him and tell him to go back to Mexico. He would open his mail and find racist letters Written from church members, disparaging him and using racial slurs. Eventually, those letters got so bad that they started including death threats. I always had security in that church because of threats that I'd received and other pastors had received. But then, by that point, they put security on his wife and his four, son, his four small children every Sunday morning when they arrived at church. And that happened for months. At one point, and I don't know this is true, this could be a rumor, but at one point there was talk about them even needing to relocate where their home was because people were afraid they knew where they lived. And let me tell you what I thought when I heard those stories. I'm not surprised. Because whenever I had preached through a text like Revelation 7, which says that every tribe and tongue will stand around the throne of God, whenever I read through or preached through a text that talked about the fact that Christ was reconciling what had been unreconciled racially, I would get angry emails and I would get angry calls and people would turn the first-time guest card into a comment card like it was McDonald's and give me their thoughts on my sermon. And they would tell me that we didn't need to be a church that looked like our community. They would tell me we didn't need to have more of those people in our church. And I let the issue sit. I didn't go after it with all my might. There was a, a a rotten, evil root in the soil of that church. And I left it. And he experienced the fruit. And you may not like the fact that I'm talking about race, but here's why I am. One day I will not be the pastor of this church. Because we're all interim pastors. Somebody pastored before me and somebody by God's grace will pastor after I'm gone. And I don't want to pass on fruit like that ever again. I'm not saying that any of you are racists. But if that root is here, I'm not going to let it sit. Because I'm not going to let any family suffer. His family did. If I can do something about it. So you say, Scott, what can we do? Well, I think there's a few things we can do today as we close. And here's the first one. We can take partiality as seriously as God does. We can take partiality as seriously as God does. In all of its forms, in every one of its expressions, we can take it as seriously as God does, and we can start treating it as seriously as James calls us to. I was talking through this sermon with the staff earlier this week, because I wanted to do my best to get it right. And I probably haven't gotten it right, but I was trying my best. And Josh McClintock on our staff, who's, man, just a gift of a friend. I wrote down something he said, and I'm going to quote him here because he deserves the credit. He was talking about the places in his own life where he's realized he's experienced partiality. And here's what he said. He said, I'm more broken than I think I am. And I need to be repenting more than I think I do. I said, Me too. Me too. I'm more broken than I think I am because it took the cross to deal with my brokenness. And I need to be doing more repenting than I think I do because I've got blind spots. I've got things I'm not aware of. Places where I'm not yet the man God wants me to be and I want to repent of those and turn and go in a different direction. So the first thing we can do is we can take partiality as seriously as God does. Number two we can love people as if they are image bearers of God because they are because they are so often when we think about the beginning of the Bible in Genesis one and two, we only think about the conversation around creation and evolution. And if that's the only thing you take from Genesis one and two, you've left way too much on the bone. In Genesis one, 27 It says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. I want you to think about the person who you're friends with on Facebook, who drives you nuts the most. Maybe you've hidden their posts. Maybe you've muted them. Maybe you've unfriended them or they've unfriended you. Think about the person with whom you are most diametrically different when it comes to politics. That person was created in the image of God. And we ought to treat them that way. They bear his image. And then number three, James would tell us to live the royal law of love. To live the royal law of love. In James 2, 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. One of the things that's really challenged me because I know the word love your neighbor as yourself, what helps me is when I think about how do I feel love? What happens that somebody does something, I go, man, that really made me feel loved. I take that idea in my mind and I go, okay, how do I figure out what helps them feel loved and do that as well? Because inherent in that command, love your neighbor as yourself is that you understand what it means to be loved yourself and you give that away. Friends, the simple take home today is this. Partiality and faith in Christ are like oil and water. They don't go together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the fact that it speaks powerfully to the moment that we are living in today. And we acknowledge, Jesus, that there is a lot of ground, a lot of flat ground here ground for us all to stand in the same place and admit the same truth that we are broken, that we are sinful and our brokenness and sin is so big and so dark that it took Jesus dying on the cross to forgive. That's our only hope and it is the thing that unifies all of us amidst all the distinctions that our world likes to make. So we pray, Jesus, that you, this greater clarity, understanding, and appreciation for what you've done for us. We pray that our faith in you would grow and our confidence in ourselves would wane. And we pray that as that happens, you would illuminate every place in our heart where we have partiality, where we discriminate in a way that you do not. And we pray that you would align our heart with yours, that we would no longer regard people as the world does, but we would regard them and view them as you do, people who were made in your image and for whom your son Jesus gave his life. And we pray that as you align our hearts and you fix our gaze, that you would change the part of the world that we have influence over. That what would be true in us is that we see and we love and we live as if you were living through us. God, you are so great and you are so good. We thank you for what you've done and for what you will one day do.